thing, um, loosely with an Advent theme this evening. I believe that Ross was preaching on Mary this morning, so I thought I'll try and avoid the Luke's Gospel, and I'll go into Matthew's Gospel, and although it's linked uh, primarily with Epiphany, where the Christ child is some two years of age, or thereabouts, uh, it is nevertheless uh, a Scripture passage in the early part of the Gospels, <clears throat> in Matthew's Gospel, which we'll turn to a little later on, uh, that is relevant for this season when we consider the theme of welcoming the stranger. And that's what I want to speak about this evening, is welcoming the stranger. But uh, to begin with, if my little gadget is going to work here, uh, maybe I should press the on button or something. Is this working? No, I think we'll press this on first. I don't need to. Sorry? Should just work. Oh, got it now. Yeah, excellent. Um, a little statement here. A core value of my faith is to welcome the stranger, the refugee, the internally displaced, the other. I shall treat him or her as if I would like to be treated. I will challenge others, even leaders of, in my faith community, to do the same. Together with faith leaders, faith-based organizations, and communities of conscience around the world, I affirm, I will welcome the stranger. <clears throat> now, these are the opening words of the United Nations Refugee Agency affirmation for faith leaders. Interesting words uh, that common, find common ground with the major faiths. They affirm, oh, it's an affirmation of highlights that uh, highlights the welcoming of the stranger is commonly expected of people in the major faiths. <clears throat> so for Judaism, equally for Christianity, when we think of the Torah, when we think of the law in the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, we can find 36 references to honoring the stranger. And it's a theme around about sort of Advent that I want to really focus in on this evening because Christ comes in some senses as a stranger, as a refugee, if you like. We'll come to that. But staying with the Torah, we have in Leviticus, one of the most prominent tenets of Jewish faith, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens, you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. In Exodus, you shall not oppress the stranger, for you know the soul of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. We move to the New Testament for Christianity. I was hungry, Jesus said. You gave, me some, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. In the letter to the Hebrews, let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't know how good you are at welcoming the stranger. 
Or perhaps those who, if we think of the stranger in a broader sense, those perhaps that society would potentially discriminate against, whether on race or for any other reason, or the refugee. What has this to do with Advent? Much. Because the world into which the Savior was born was turbulent, was unstable, chaotic in many ways, although order had been brought about by the Romans. There were so many changes and uncertainties going on in the time of the coming of Christ. In addition, for the family of the newborn Christ child, it was a time of danger, discomfort, difficulty, poverty, involving much travel and dependency on others for welcome and hospitality. It's the world into which the Savior came. It didn't only include a journey into Bethlehem for a census, but having to flee to Egypt from the cruel Herod. And those who do these calculations have worked out that it was some 980 miles that Jesus traveled, or Jesus' family traveled, in the early uh, years, the first two to three years of, of uh, his life, forced by one oppressive government to go to the census in Bethlehem and to another to flee to Egypt for safety. And all this time, they relied on the hospitality of others. Advent. Some, including probably those of us here, and I would certainly include myself in this, may regard Christmas as a much-needed holiday break, a time for family to get together, a welcome distraction during the worst of the year's weather and the darkness of the winter nights. I'll put my hand up to that one. Say, yeah, all of those things. Don't condemn anybody who treats this season in that way. Surely that's okay. However, this season can become, for some, a season of unrestrained indulgence and selfishness, turning a blind eye to the needs of the poor and the oppressed whose hopes and longings still remain unfulfilled in the global village of the world in which we now live, where there is so much awareness of what goes on in the world and amongst the peoples with whom we share this planet. For a Christian, the true message of Advent, the coming of the Savior into the world, is that which underlies these festivities. It should surely always be the central focus at this time of year, even though many other aspects of it, the holiday and the feasting and the exchanging of presents and all of that nice stuff about this season of the year. Let's not be killjoys about Christmas, but let's focus mainly on the Savior. But then what was the true picture of life like that surrounded the first advent 
and the first Christmas. It's far removed from what we imagine, perhaps, it, it to be, unless we've given it some thought. It's very different from what we experience in walking through shopping malls at this time of year when we get these banal songs, the Slade and everything else. I think, sorry, but that's one side of Christmas I don't like. Bar humbug. In preparations for Jesus' first coming into the world, it was far different from the newly decorated nursery painted pink or blue and the fairy lights and the warm, fuzzy Christmas songs and sentiments of a comfortable age in which we live. This was not Jesus' world in Advent at Christmas. Christmas stories of the Bible are accounts not of an expectant mother all cozied up in a nice warm home with good prenatal care, but a bumpy ride from Nazareth through to Jerusalem at the requirements of an oppressive government, followed by a flight to Egypt, not by EasyJet, but overland from the murderer's Herod for the sake of survival. And Jesus, in the womb and in infancy, in a sense, was like a refugee. The reading is in Matthew's Gospel. I'm just going to read the first, first 12 verses of Matthew's Gospel here, where we recall this time after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I write, as we say in East Kilbride. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had Seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This passage is a passage which is often read during Epiphany rather than Advent, but it's included in these early narratives and it's, it uh, speaks into this theme of welcoming the stranger. The so-called wise don't always get it right. <clears throat> the most influence, influential of this Magi group appear to have lacked intuition and been cerebral to a fault. 
There were probably those amongst them who were intuitive in that they had been following the star and felt that they should continue to do so instead of going off on a rabbit trail and off to Herod and causing all of the problems that led to the slaying of firstborn children. But the prevailing voices in the group took them to Herod's palace. Intuition without careful thought can be misguided. But a cerebral, calculated approach is not guaranteed to lead us in the right direction either without listening to the voices of those who are intuitive to inform the process. A little bit like a captain of a ship who's going by the instruments. Uh, This captain of the ship might say, well, this is what the instruments say, but somebody else might be on the deck saying, well, I can see something that looks like a large iceberg ahead. We need both of these voices to know guidance. Advent. A while ago, I watched a a news interview on the BBC about uh, what was then called the jungle. And it took me by surprise because I'd never heard the term before. It's now all closed up in Calais. But uh, it was an article that was was about African asylum seekers who had uh, failed to, uh, in their attempt to board a train passing through the Euro Tunnel, and at the end of the interview, he asked, so what are you going to do now, he said in the, in the interview. Are you going to go back to the jungle? Uh, and I thought, what? What? What's he saying to? And then, of course, I learned that that's the nickname for Calais, for the, for the, the camp that was there. But uh, a visitor to the camp at that time when it was there described it in this way, and I I took notes of this from a newspaper article. Uh, As the night drew on, I was invited into some of the refugees' tents. A Sudanese man began to explain to me why he'd left his country and alluded to me some of the horrors that he'd experienced before he fled. The government and the Janjaweed started attacking the village at five or four in the morning. They started burning houses straight away. And there was no escape for the children and old people. They captured me whilst I was looking for my siblings, took me to their camp and tortured me before I managed to escape. The deep scar across his nose from the torture was clear to see. And as he continued to describe the harrowing events that forced him to leave his country, the scent of traditional Sudanese food filled the air. And we all went on to share positive stories from our respective homelands, swap photos of our family and crack some jokes. I discovered that many of these kinds of people were skilled professionals in their homelands, lawyers, civil engineers, and university students. It's too too easy to look at people with prejudice, to prejudge people and, and see an asylum seeker and not actually see a history, not see a person. I'm uh, well up for being anti-discriminatory. In our church, in Westwood Baptist Church, we've got the See Me um, placard on the, in the entranceway. It's positive discrimination to people with visible difficulties and 
disabilities. And it says, don't see my disabilities, see me. And we should learn, if we're going to welcome the stranger, to see the person, not to see the condition or the whatever, it el whatever else is there that potentially we could discriminate against. Move on a slide here. The scene of the Calais camps does, uh, is, is more like the Christmas that we, or the advent of Jesus' time, than that which we, we think of today um, in terms of Christmas, with the, the jolly songs of kind of play to shoppers in festive mood as they make preparations. The, the, the Calais scene is much more like it than the, than the traditional kind of commercialized Christmas that we're used to. Um, can I throw in a bit of bar humbug here? Seems appropriate. Santas, sleigh bells, tinsel and twinkling lights, presents under the tree and Christmas puds, though warm and fuzzy, bear little resemblance to the realities of Advent that we read of in the Scriptures. And have fun, by all means, in the season. Children and adults alike enjoy the celebration, but do remember the kind of world that he, the light of the world, came into. A darkened world. A world in need. And there are aspects of that in our world today. The world has changed in many ways. But there are many things that have not changed. There is still much oppression. I just need to mention countries like Syria or Egypt or Iraq, Afghanistan, Myanmar. It's interesting to hear the Pope use the word Rohingya this week. That was a good, good word for him to use. If you're unaware of the subtleties there, it's giving recognition to a people who are being persecuted by the predominant Catholic population in Myanmar. Marginalized and pushed out. And the Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, gives them recognition. Theologians debate on whether or not God suffers. Does God suffer? Can God suffer? We think of Christ's suffering, but does God suffer when we think of God in Trinity? I'm convinced that there's a very strong argument to support the um, theological belief that God does indeed suffer. Although what kind of change might take place in God through the impact of humankind and human suffering. I don't think that God essentially can change. I don't think this somehow contradicts the unchanging nature of God. But nevertheless, pain in God must be there. How can a father look upon a son who is in agony? And how can a son suffer such pain in, in, in the cross without there being somehow pain in God or a pain that God feels somehow for a world in need. The Psalms would support this. Psalm 34, 18. 
The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered. When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And for us as believers to, to recognize, to identify that we are comfortable in our part of the world. We should always have a mind to welcome the stranger and to care for those who suffer. On coming to the house, we read Matthew 2, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. This week, we welcomed a stranger. I'm very glad to do so. It's a guy named uh, Daudi Musoke, who's from Uganda. And he's involved in a tremendous ministry, I think, there in Uganda called the Kitega Community Center. Uh, and it's been set up for, to care for orphans. Uh, and, well, primarily not just for orphans, for people with disabilities, people with Down syndrome, people with other ma all manner of, of uh, difficulties, of, of disabilities, that normally these people are shut away, he said. He was describing what it's like for disabled African people in their culture because of the superstition that if a parents have a child that is disabled, they think that either the parents have sinned or there's witchcraft been going on, and these parents will shut that child away, and they'll hide that child away, and they'll almost hope and pray for that child to die in order that they might be free from the stigma of having become parents to a disabled child. It's a terrible culture to be living in where there is ignorance like that. But what Dowdy and the others have done is they've set up a community for disabled children. And so they're coming out of these huts and these sheds and they're coming into the community there. Uh, and we, we give some support to Dowdy for this work. And anyway, he, he, it was great to have him in the house and he brought a little gift from the Katega community. It was a nativity scene made out of corn, the waste materials from the corn, the leaves and the, the stalks and everything else. They all made up into a nativity scene and I, I did smile when I saw it because in the nativity scene there was the crib and there was the baby and there was Mary and there was Joseph and the angel Gabriel and the donkey and the sheep and the wise men. And that's what I always chuckle about. Wise men weren't there. Not in the stable. This came later. The wise men came at a time when Jesus is a toddler. He's maybe two years of age, something like that. To a cave. Not to an inn or to a stable, but to a converted cave of some kind. And we tend to put, put them together. Sometimes you see it on Christmas cards. It's a different time. But let's stay with this for a moment. The gifts were there of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Was this genuine insight on behalf of the Magi? That here, this Christ child who had come into the world was a, a king. And therefore, we'll, they gave him gold for his royalty and... Uh, a, 
he was God, and we were given frankincense for his deity, and myrrh for his humanity. It makes a great sermon outline. But I'm not quite convinced that they had that kind of insight. I think we impose that upon the text uh, somehow. I think it was much more a matter of giving something to honor this family, and it was the providence of God by which a very poor family were being um, provided for. And also in the providence of God, there is a warning of impending danger. They've been to Herod. They need to get away. To escape from danger can be wisdom, not cowardice. I heard uh, people being very critical. Christians, some Christians being very critical of asylum seekers who were fleeing war-torn countries, saying, oh, well, you know, in the war, when we were in the war, we didn't run away. We, we stood and we fought. And I, I felt it betrayed a misunderstanding of the gravity of the situation where if they remained, they would die, these people. They were in grave danger. There is a place for running. Even Jesus himself, when he was in danger, passed through the midst of the people who were going to stone him. King David, when he was in danger, pretended to be crazy in order to escape what was inevitably coming his way. The apostle Paul escaped from the city and laughed at himself, rather, as he was lowered down in a basket through the wall. And Jesus warned the people that before the time of A.D. 70, when the Romans would come in and destroy Jerusalem, when they saw the signs of this, that the disciples should flee to the mountaintops. There is a place for running. But for every escapee, there needs to be someone who welcomes the stranger. Whatever that person may be running from, there needs to be somebody who will help them in the direction that they have run to. However that may apply, I'm envious in some ways of churches that live near to the proximity where asylum seekers and refugees are being housed because it brings a mission field to the doorstep. Never mind all the expense of learning another language and, and sending people to missionary training schools so that they can uh, go off to, well, maybe even Somalia or something like that when you've got Somali people living in a tower block next to your church who are seeking to learn the English language and it's a ready-made mission field on the doorstep for a church that is prepared to welcome the stranger. Now, I don't know when it, whether anything that I have said has exposed within anyone here areas in which you potentially, as individuals or as a, a community, as a church here, could learn by realizing that there are areas in which you could discriminate against others in, in ways that would exclude them rather than welcome them as Jesus did someone to walk in on Sunday morning 
next Sunday morning and thought and people started to shift over this way and shift over this, this way because of the way that the person was dressed or whatever it was. Liz and I were in a church last Sunday morning and it's, uh, it, was, it was a great church, a lovely atmosphere in, in it. Uh, we've just been, it's one of the advantages of not being full-time in ministry anymore. We can go and visit churches. And uh, when you mentioned the poem earlier on, Jason, I thought, I'll just pop, pop it up here. Um, but I, th- I write poems too. And I wrote uh, a little poem about this church called First Impressions. And, uh, and this, is, this describes the church and what went on that morning. A gathering of friends with a spiritual heart, a countdown from hill songs that signaled the start, inspiring worship and talented singers, an eclectical mixture of saints and of sinners, dressed up and dressed down in all manner of colors, but sharing as equals, as sisters and brothers, a facial tattoo, a guy dressed in pink, a medical care dog, a girl with a limp, love and affection that's not just a token, caring acceptance that's honest and open, encouraging words spontaneously spoken. People got up to to share. Uh, Spontaneously spoken. As the spirit inspiring the whole and the broken, as the Spirit inspired both the whole and the broken, relational preaching, the talk of advance to the crew of the ship in the ocean's expanse, finding direction as God leads the way, the response of amen as the ship leaves the bay, life in the worship and truth in the word, love in the welcome, God's blessing conferred. And I believe God's blessing rests upon a congregation who's willing to welcome the stranger. We are welcome, and we can welcome others. We're welcomed by Christ. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In closing, there's one other aspect of welcome and hospitality that I've not mentioned. We can think of Christ who has welcomed us. And we can think about our willingness or otherwise to welcome others. But we are also to welcome Christ. The words, here am I, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. These are words often preached in a gospel message. But they are words written to a church. Inasmuch as we welcome the stranger, we welcome Jesus.